This is the Future of HR podcast, episode 42. And so the idea is information is valuable only when it is useful. And at the most extreme case, it's when it corrects a decision that would have been wrong. And I think often in HR, we're not asking that question pointedly enough. Exactly where in the decision process for this organization would these data make a difference where someone's likely to get it wrong and we can help them get it more right? How can HR become more of a decision science? Why are decision frameworks just as critical as having good data? Hi, I'm your host, JP Elliott, and this is the Future of HR podcast, the only podcast whose mission is to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. On each episode, I interview successful HR executives and thought leaders who are reimagining, rethinking, and leading our field into the future. During our candid conversations, you will learn about their career journeys, their lessons learned along the way, and their insights on how to take our field, and most importantly, your career to the next level. Well, we are less than three months away from what I believe will be one of the best HR events of the year. I'm talking about Mark Efron's Future of HR workshop, which is taking place in Boston on September 19th. Tickets are almost sold out, so don't wait any longer to secure your spot by visiting futureofhr2023.com. Why am I so excited about this event? First, it's a workshop, not a conference. Seven world-class CHROs will be leading highly interactive conversations with 100 HR leaders that are in attendance. These workshops are a chance to learn from the best, debate ideas, and tackle the big challenges facing our field. Second, I know the caliber of HR leaders who are going to be presenting and attending will be world-class. This is a great opportunity to build your network, and heck, I'll be there as well, so I hope to see you there. On this week's episode, I am honored to have two of the best minds in HR, Dr. John Bedreau and Pete Ramstad. Dr. Boudreau is recognized worldwide as a leading evidence-based visionary in the future of work and organizations. His large-scale research studies and focused field research has addressed the future of work, the global HR profession, work automation, HR measurement and analytics, decision-based HR, and much more. He has produced over 200 publications, including more than 10 books. And most recently, he co-authored Work Without Jobs, How to Reboot Your Organization's Work Operating System. Dr. Boudreau is also Professor Emeritus of Management and Organization and a Senior Research Scientist with the Center for Effective Organizations at the Marshall School of Business at the University of Southern California. Joining him today will be Pete Ramstead, is a former accounting firm partner who, after deciding to get his PhD in accounting, transitioned to become a successful CHRO at two companies. His work and writing have been focused on how HR can be more evidence-based, and more of a decision science like finance and accounting. I really enjoyed my conversation with John and Pete, and know you will too, as we discussed the partnership that led to their classic book, Beyond HR, why HR needs to be a decision science, why making good decisions requires having the right mental model for the situation, why information is most valuable when it corrects decisions that if made would have been wrong and why HR should be using data to measure the quality of decisions that our line managers are making and much more. John and Pete, welcome to the Future of HR. How are you both doing today? Doing great. It's a nice warm day here in Minnesota and plenty of things to do in our very short summer season, so we're having a good day. 
Yeah, me too. Awesome, Pete. John, where are you? Are you in California? No, actually, my new base is northern New Mexico, Santa Fe, New Mexico. Uh, All right, back to your roots in New Mexico. And so I'm at 7,000 feet plus, and today is one of those days when thunderstorms are circling all around us up in the high desert. So I'm one. My wife and I are watching, betting which one of them will, if any, will put a little rain in our yard. We are so excited to have both of you on the podcast today to hear more about the incredible work you've done over the years, your careers, and where you think HR is going, and particularly some of the work you're doing on the untapped potential of CHROs. But I want to start the conversation really looking at this incredible impact you guys have both had on the field of HR. And we'd love to know more about where that passion and talent comes from. John, let's start with you first. Can you share a little bit more about your career and how you came into focus on HR and talent in your academic research? Yeah. So it, back in the 70s, I was in undergraduate school. And, you know, I kind of made my way as undergraduates do to various things and ended up in business school. And of all the classes I took, I got most fascinated with the ones that were in. I'm not sure they even called it HR or, you know, probably something like org behavior or organizations. Anyway, in those classes, I read books by some of the people I was going to become colleagues with, like Ed Lawler later in my life. And those books were showing things about empowering the front line. So the Japanese management system was a real big deal in the 70s, allowing workers to pull a cord and stop the line to offer suggestions for improvement. I remember a video we watched that, that said the normal management system is like putting a black curtain in the middle of a bowling alley and you throw the ball and it goes under the black curtain and you don't see anything. And the supervisor says, good or bad, standing there by the curtain. But what if we remove the curtain and you see the results of your own work, that kind of thing. So that really fascinated me. And my mentors there were smart enough to say, John, you know, being a good student doesn't predict a lot, but it predicts being a good professor. And so if you think you might like this job, I said, yeah, it looks like a pretty good job to me. So thanks to their recommendations and everything went off to Purdue. They also said, find a place that'll get you an MBA on the way, which is real smart, I thought, for the time, rather than IO, or not opposed to, but rather than IO psychology. So basically, you know, got PhD at Purdue, continued to be interesting. Folks at Cornell were kind enough to give me a shot. Never thought I'd get even tenure there. And I ended up getting tenure and full professorship and having a research center. And then Ed Lawler, after all those years, was kind enough to offer me a position at USC. And it was in about 2003. So I was well into my career. And this is how I described it. And I was working with the Navy. And my dad had been in the Navy. And I called him and said, hey, dad, I'm teaching captains and commanders in the Navy this week. And I went back in and my handler... Admiral Phil Quast, wonderful guy, said, tell me again why you do this. And I realized that the reason I do it is because my dad was a frontline computer repair person for IBM, worked for a great company. And we talk about whether he liked his work or not. And one of the things she said was, I love the company. I, I love the work. I love my team. I just wish a supervisor knew how much it would mean to us. They could take us out to dinner when we complete a, a big repair job the way the sales team gets taken out to dinner when they beat their quota. And he said, IBM's got rules and policies and it's not, that's not something they do for their technicians. And I understand that, but boy, I wish they knew how much it would mean to us. And now when I do my work, what I think about JP is maybe somewhere I make a humble contribution to a worker like my dad, having a better work experience to a supervisor. 
understanding something about their workers they might not have seen. That's an incredible inspirational story to know that kind of passion. Thanks for sharing that, John. Pete, how about you? You've been a CHRO twice in your career, but you're not a traditional HR executive. Tell us a little more about your career journey and no. how you got to know John. Undergrad, I was a math major only because I was in engineering school. Couldn't find an engineering field that I liked. And so I ended up going into math. Went to work initially with a company here locally called Control Data. Used to rate operating systems, special purpose operating systems. And then went to work for a CPA firm. They were looking for IT people to help do IT consulting. And very, very fortunate that I joined the CPA firm the same month and year that the IBM PC was released. So all these accountants all around me didn't know how to use this device. And it was the most wonderful device I'd ever seen. The easiest use to things. So I was got used a lot, even very early in my career, because I could make the PCs work. And that got me involved in a lot of high-end financial discussions that otherwise someone at my stage of my career never would have been involved in because I knew how to do modeling, which was really an unusual thing and run a spreadsheet. I mean, these were really far out concepts back in the day. And I did that and became a partner in the CPA firm. Spent nine years in public accounting, five years as a partner. And, uh, but was really was curious about what's beyond that. And I was the faculty rep for our CPA firm to the school to hire at the University of Minnesota to hire undergraduate accountants. And I kept telling the department head that I think I might rather be a professor than a partner. And he kept saying, no, Pete, you're a partner at a CPA firm. You've been there five years. Trust me. You ought to stay in the CPA firm. And after a couple of years of that, I finally bit the bullet, resigned the partnership, went into the PhD program. And I had a client called Personnel Decisions, PDI. They were a client of mine. I said, Lowell, you're paying me a lot of money at the CPA firm rate, so why don't you just hire me part-time? And Lowell Hallovic was gracious enough to hire me, and I went to work part-time at PDI when I went into graduate school to study accounting theory. Accounting theory is not about debits and credits. It's about economics and about signals and how signals create value. And But I was also working at PDI, and I give Lowell Hallovic just tons of credit. This is the heyday of PDI in terms of research and some of the best minds and a real focus on things like PSYOP and academic relationships. You know, John and I heard Jay Conger talk about the evolution of leadership development and how it's gone all commercial and really not anywhere near as academically based. You don't see as much of it as PSYOP and those kinds of things. And I was very fortunate. So I started working on simple concepts, but one of the basic ones is PDI did a lot of assessments and they say, well, I hear people talking about, we can't convince people the value of an assessment. The CFO won't pay for it. And I remember saying, well, you ask the CFO, how many unrated bonds do they buy? And what's a bond rating? What does S&P do? It's a valid and reliable, but imperfect predictor of the future performance of a risky asset. What's a PDI assessment? Valid and reliable, but imperfect predictor of the future performance of a risky asset. So economically, they're exactly the same. There's just zero differences in but they're treated completely different within organizations. One thing led to another, and I started putting together some thoughts and some papers. And through a connection out at Cornell, George Milkovich found out about my work and said, do you want to come speak to our, to John Boudreau? And he said, in fact, I'll invite you to a, what they call an academic faculty and student kind of where someone comes in and presents. And I knew I was supposed to be presented to John Boudreau. I'll never forget it. I went to Cornell, had my PowerPoint slide. I didn't know who John Boudreau was in the meeting. So I'm looking over this audience. You know, all the graduate students and all the professors that decided to come up. But I presented some of my ideas. John was gracious enough to think that some of them had merit. But what I brought to the table was a really deep understanding of accounting, not only practically, but theoretically. And also, I did a lot of work on the history of accounting. And so thinking about how did accounting evolve over the years? And that really has a lot of relevance because HR is on the similar path, just about 50 or 60 years behind. 
And so when you think about the 1930s, when we really have rapidly accelerated accounting, that's because capital was constrained and labor was abundant. Right now, we're labor constrained and capital abundant, and it changes all the dynamics. So I worked on the economic theory and the applications. John worked on the, the, how it applies to HR, and we started working together. That's my story, John. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, JP, it was sort of a, a partnership that was meant to be as soon as Pete and I got to talking. I had been doing you know, the, my tenure at Cornell and my academic kind of notoriety, I guess we might say, if there was one, in the early days was about developing formulas for the value of better selection, better training, et cetera, from a psychological research standpoint. So I had spent quite a lot of time thinking about how would we say, what are the variables that lead to value here? And what does it mean to get value out of improved selection or training? So it was natural. And I had the MBA, you know, I was nowhere near as qualified as Pete in accounting or finance, but I was close enough that I could keep up with them and, and then begin to bring it over and say, hey, how would that apply over here? Yep. And so just to close the loop, we focused a lot on value. We recognize that value depends a lot on context. And the economic word for context is strategy. And so we deeply connected the strategy concepts to the value work that we are doing. And that's where the concept of decision science came from. And that's how the academics, that's how the research and the thinking unfolded to get us to decision science. Just not all that different from bookkeeping to accounting to finance. And you could look at things like capital asset pricing models and those kinds of things versus the history of double entry accounting and all the things before that. It evolves from a transaction processing to some sort of a standardized measurement to some sort of strategic context decision-making. Well, it's so important to have these type of relationships where someone's bringing something new to the table, right? You're bringing an accounting perspective to finance and trying to quantify what, for a lot of ways, people say, oh, it's unquantifiable. You know, I'm trusting my <laughs> gut. And so that's why I think your book, Beyond HR, when you when that came out, it spoke to me, it spoke to a lot of people. And if you haven't read it, I really encourage you to go pick up Beyond HR. It's still a classic. And I think one of the main theses of the entire book is that HR must become a decision science. So John, tell us more about what does it mean to be a decision science? I think Pete put his finger on it. I think the two elements would be, JP, decision meaning that the focus is on how the function, the discipline, this thing called HR, how it affects decisions about a, in this case, about an asset, an asset that we call talent. So that's the one thing that, that it ought to be a framework. It, the focus ought to be how do we improve decisions that have to do with this resource? And then the science part was kind of based out of my own, but also Pete's academic background to say it ought to be based on evidence-based would be one way to think about it. And we ought to be also making the decision process a scientific inquiry in itself. So questions like, why would a leader go by their gut when it comes to people, but never by their gut when it comes to money, would be a scientific question we could ask about the decision process. So decisions based on evidence, based on science, and also looking at the decision process and decisions themselves as a scientific inquiry. And as Pete said, that had a real parallel to the difference between finance, which is a decision science about money, and accounting, which is more the operations of how we manage money. And we began to say, oh, okay, now we're seeing a parallel here between what we might call personnel traditionally and what we would say ought to be human resources 
which is focusing on the decisions and enhancing those decisions about the resource of HR, which is talent or we might say work or organization as well. And probably no better example of a lack of decision science, in my mind, than watching CEOs make decisions about return to work policies over the last 18 months. <laughs> As we talk to CHROs who are on the receiving end of those decisions, and by the way, they are far more on the receiving end than on the shaping end in general. They, are, they may be at the table a good chance to influence, but they, at the end of the day, these, these CEOs are making decisions that the CHROs have got to implement. And one example, CEO defined everybody has to work five days a week. CHRO noticed within a few weeks that they were getting 25% dropout rates on applicants as soon as they found out that it's a strict five days a week policy. Well, there's a way you can quantify 25% dropout rate on applicants versus whatever <laughs> benefit the CEO is trying to achieve. But that's not being done. You know, if it was, you know, if it was done in marketing or done in finance, there would be much more balanced decision-making, some ways to measure the trade-offs. And that's just a simple example. It's one that happens to be right in the middle of the area right now, but we're just watching how those decisions got made and the concept of decision science has applies to that as an example. Pete, I love that you brought that up because the return to work policy is really driven by mostly emotion. And you're right. It's my experience exactly talking to people. It's the CEO decision. But what I really hear you saying is, how can we be much more evidence based and really saying what's the data, what is the decision we're trying to make, and what are the facts or things that are supporting that that are based on something we can quantify versus just using our guts, which Yes, is a lot of times how we operate. And one critical middle step that we see, it's one of the biggest gaps in decision science. It's what decision do we have to make? What's the mental model for making that decision? Then what data do we put into it? And a lot of times we see people trying to just throw data at it, but they don't have a way to integrate that data into a decision context. And so the lack of a decision model is, we think, the biggest gap. And using the accounting example, capital asset pricing theory showed how to put a lot of data to use in accounting that we didn't even know we had before. And it's decision models that we think are the missing link. There's been great progress in information about HR, and that's only going to continue. But if we don't also close the gap on the decision frameworks that people use, that's, I think, the toughest gap to close with regards to decision science. Yeah, let's talk a little bit more about that because one of the questions I wanted to ask you both was, we've made tremendous progress in people analytics. It's a real capability now. It's a growing capability. Um, it's adding tremendous value and giving us insights we never had before with predictive AI, et cetera. However, it still feels like HR isn't using that data to drive business decisions. There's still a gap. We've got information, we have insights, but they don't always connect back to the return to work strategy. So talk to us more about these decision-making frameworks, mental models that maybe we need to shift or think differently about. John? JP, this is a little overstated, but just to make the point, uh, you can be awash in data. And I think we are, if we're not already, we're about to be utterly awash in data about all kinds of things, about individual attributes, individual reactions to the work experience. The work experience, or sometimes called employee experience, is it's just exploding with tools. Right? I went to a venture conference, and second after generative AI was employee experience. That's the thing every company needed to say they were about. So I think we'll be a wash in data about that. We'll be a wash in data about performance, which is getting 
better and easier to measure. And, and so there's a difference between the data and decisions based on those data. This is something that I've talked about, but lots and lots of my colleagues as well. There's the issue of, of what happens between the data and the individual who's expected to act on it. And I think very often there's kind of a fundamental premise in basic information theory. If you think about the days when you learned about drawing marbles out of red and white marbles out of a button, right? And how much would you pay for the next marble as a predictor? And depending if you just threw, you know, 10 white ones in a row, you're probably not going to pay much to guess the next one, right? And so the idea is information is valuable only when it is useful. And at the most extreme case, it's when it corrects a decision that would have been wrong. And I think often in HR, we're not asking that question pointedly enough. Exactly where in the decision process for this organization would these data make a difference where someone's likely to get it wrong and we can help them get it more right? That would mean, for example, that the data is often going to be most useful to the leaders that have the least experience or at least prepared to predict the implications of a talent decision. So it's really quite interesting, I think, that gets to Pete's point about the mental models. So how do we give leaders the models they need to know when they're about to get it wrong and when information would help them get it right? Pete? The other challenge I'd say with data is that so much of the data is still being used to justify HR. They want to show the ROI on their investment. And I, one of my favorite questions to ask CHROs is, would you like to have data in HR that's powerful as the data in finance? They say, yes. And I say, well, how much of the accounting data measures what the accounting department's doing? And the answer is none. They use their data to hold the line managers accountable for the assets they care about. So one of, one of the basic paradigms that would change a lot of data is let's use the data to measure the quality of decisions that our line managers are making. A bank absolutely knows which bank officers makes good and bad predictions about the future payoffs of loans. There's absolutely no reason in HR to function shouldn't know which line managers do a good job or bad job of predicting which talent they hire eventually performs. It's one of the most critical jobs they do. And why doesn't HR measure that? Instead, they try to measure how fast they're serving and what a good job they're doing in the staffing department and their cost for hire and time to fill. But the really powerful data is who's making the final decision, the line manager, and do we know with data which line managers make good and bad decisions? And I just use that as an example of changing the framework and changing the mindset on data. The other example I'll use just to close the loop with what John said, you can look at John's papers and you can use that formula to measure what quality of talent you lose when you have a 25% reduction in the size of the applicant pool. That's a knowable number. Absolutely, with every bit of economic precision, that looks remarkably similar to the way that we value options with Black-Scholes. A lot of the math is very similar in terms of distributions and all that kind of thing. So what John was publishing papers on the value of that, I was studying this brand new model called Black-Scholes in my PhD program, but they're remarkably similar model. So we would never see people trade options without using Black-Scholes. I doubt very many HR leaders are measuring the actual value lost in their organization with a 25% reduction in applicant pool. First off, that is so insightful. We should underline this point because that mental model shift of accounting or finance is not telling you how fast they're producing the decks or the insights. They're talking about actual outputs. 
I think the smart HR people or next generation HR leaders are trying to figure this out. But what's holding us back in your perspective? We think there's a couple of things, okay. But we boil them down to is they haven't adequately developed their own leadership platforms. And so one of the things that we continue to look at is the comparison of the CHRO and the HR function to the CFO and the other functions. And one of the, one of the challenges is that CHROs have to develop stronger leadership platforms. And rather than focusing exclusively on HR transformations, which are good, they're focused, out of that comes a lot better employee experiences quite often. A lot of that comes over better efficiency, better use of technology. Uh, they've got to move beyond the decreasing returns that can come from that side of their vision and think about a three-year vision for their HR function, not a one-year transformation. And so we think that they have to get on a three-year maturity model and say, where do I want to be in three years? What seeds do I need to plant now in order to have good data for where I want to be three years from now? And that was the big lesson I learned going from my first HR job to my second HR job, because I did a lot of work in year one and two, but I knew I couldn't harvest until year three. And things like I started having HR business partners measure every piece of turnover. Was this good turnover or bad turnover? So you think about the division controllers, they measure, is this a good asset or a bad asset? They started having business partners measure, was this a good hire a year later or not? Was this a good turnover? Because sometimes turnover is a wonderful thing. You know, somebody left, it was great. No, no lawsuits and everybody's happy. And sometimes it's a real loss. So you, we started having HR business partners take different roles. Now, I couldn't use that data for a year or two, but I had a three-year plan about how I was doing some of that, mostly starting with HR and developing it and then having it be harvestable in years two and three in various kinds of ways. So it's choosing to have a different paradigm, moving beyond services, moving beyond efficiency, and thinking about what do I need to do in order to prepare to plow the ground, you know, which is a lot about thinking about where your future goals are, developing your HR function, having a different framework for how you want to collect data, even though you may not be able to use it right away. Yeah, I would agree. I'd agree with Pete on the patient development of this. I think, JP, it's interesting. You know, we all know, and I've been privileged to work with many of them, HR leaders that are at the top of the iceberg, I'd say, the ones above the waterline. We read about them all the time. They do a good job of influencing their leadership teams. Very often, they're using a male model to teach the leadership teams how to think about something like layoffs or the relationship between engagement and performance or the connection between talent and talent evolution and their strategy. Right now, a lot of attention to the value perhaps of something like a skill-based approach or something like that. So it does happen. You know, this influence does happen. I think one of the things about the HR profession, and this is still true today, is it's very individualistic. So the profession, as a profession, doesn't yet provide the kind of clarity and consistency about the logic of how better decisions about talent and organization lead to organization value. Now, I think everyone's aware of connecting to strategy, connecting to the business, but that word connecting has a lot behind it. So what exactly does it mean? How much can my engagement fall before I suffer from it? You know, how many layoffs can I do before it's too many? And you know, how, how many applicants can I allow to reject our offers because they don't want to work five days in the office before it's too many? So I think it's very individualistic rather than a professional consistency. And it's interesting, what was it now? 10 years ago, I was approached by a number of what, some of the most excellent CHROs I know. And they said, 
we want to work on fixing HR. And I said, you got to be kidding me. You're at the top of your game. And they said, no, what about the future of HR? And I said, read my books. And they said, calm down, John. That's not what we have in mind. What they had in mind was a number of things they were seeing as super successful heads of HR. This project eventually was called the CREATE Project, C-H-R-E-A-T-E, with my colleague Ian Ziskin and Carolyn Rerick. And one of the things they said was, there is no accepted consistent logic about how, let's say HR, but HR through talent, how that all creates value, not like finance. So one of the things Pete has often pointed out is that in today's world, a leader in a business is expected to have a certain level of facility with the decision science of money. You know, you don't get to be a leader and say, well, I want to lead this business and I'm pretty sure cash equals sales. I think that's right. That's what I believe. I believe cash equals sales. Well, you're not going to get the job, you know, and it's kind of like, hey, you go back and learn the mental model of how to, how money works. And then when you come back, we have a finance organization that'll help you manage that resource, but you are expected to become facile. I see many, many leaders whose model of motivation is tell them what to do and pay them a lot to do it. Nothing could be more myopic in terms of the decades and decades of research on motivation and engagement and all that. But you can go your entire career as a leader with that being your mental model of employing motivation and do very, very well. And so, again, I don't blame the leaders, but there's no accountability for that kind of myopia very often when it comes to people. And the profession often influences, but maybe not through a consistent model that leaders have been expected to learn and that we can expect to see when they come into the organization. So HR has to teach it on the fly. That's why it takes three years, for example. Because part of the reason it takes three years is the first year you got to spend getting your HR team to get to Because if you, if you present the same HR issue to four different business partners, you're likely to get four different answers. So how can you expect the line managers to have a consistent point of view when you don't even have a consistent point of view within HR itself? And so this is the part of the development of the function that's necessary for a decision science approach. Well, I think what's so interesting you guys are both bringing up, we don't have a consistent way to do HR. It just isn't like finance. And maybe that, Pete, that's why you said we're 30 to 50 years behind finance in, in terms of the reporting. We're getting better every day, but we are certainly, certainly far behind. And I think the other point you made so interesting, to get a three-year sign-off with, with a CEO to come in and say, look, I'm going to be a world-class CHRO, but it's going to take me three years to get this organization to really have decision science and really track, quantify talent. I'm not sure you get three years. It's going to be an enlightened yeah, CEO to, to, that gives you three years. That's one of the challenges we're all up. And to be fair, as I didn't ask, right? I had to spend the first two years not asking. I had to do it internally. I had to do it within HR. I had to build the foundation while I was delivering. Yeah. One of the worst things we do is, is set expectations for HR before we really deliver it. Marketing would never let you advertise a product before it's on the shelf. You know, and so often we give HR transformations big names. We're going to do project XYZ and you're going to get all these wonderful benefits you know, because they're so desperate for line leader and CEO support. And that's actually, that's actually not helpful here because you can't explain it. They'll know it when they see it kind of thing. 
and it takes a while to develop it. And so that whole approach to HR transformation, which sells a lot of big consulting projects from the big consulting firms. Don't get me wrong. You can save a lot of money. You can reorganize. And most CHROs get to do one or two of those in their career. But that's not the same as thinking through the systematic maturity and having a three-year maturity model. Technology plays a role. Efficiency plays a role. But we think there's a missing layer, which is a three-year maturity cycle. But then it's constantly updating three years. That you're always looking three years in advance. What do we have to develop to get to the next stage here? Both in first in our function, then with our strategy processes, then with our line leaders all the way through. Well, I know we've got a little bit of time left, but I probably not enough time to go deep on some of where you're going in your research. But I'd love for you to both just give us an overview of where you're partnering now on what I guess you are calling untapped CHRO leadership platforms. We've always talked about CEO support being critical, okay? But it's actually a lot more than CEO support. So what we've tried to do is put a taxonomy and put together a framework around it and put together things into five different categories. And obviously, the relationship with the CEO is important, but it's a lot richer than that. In fact, the way you approach the other five can actually influence a lot of the CEO support you get. So we're trying to talk to CHROs and people who want to be CHROs, but not about how they do their competency development, but how do they do their leadership platform development so they get a chance to uh, use their competencies. We see a lot of CHROs have more competencies than their environment allows them to do. And they spend more time trying to get permission to do something or try to get resources to do something or try to get the opportunity to do something than what they're capable of doing. And so this leadership platform concept is a way to help CHROs, the future CHROs, assess the situation. It's not just about them. It's how they interact with the organization and how do they develop their own particular leadership platforms in the five areas we've developed. Well, I can't wait to see the finished product, but I think also this a mental model you're giving to CHROs as well to not only assess an opportunity, but think about how you're going to transform a company and make impact, which I think is so important in what we do because a lot of what we do is intangible. So I can't wait to see it. And one of, the, one of the pieces that's kind of interesting is we've had some people use it to figure out, is this a CHRO job I'm going to want to take? Not based on the company, but based on what kind of CHRO platforms am I going to inherit that will allow me to be successful? And so the idea that they could use to evaluate different opportunities in terms of, is this, is this an environment where I'm likely to be successful or not, depending on the CHRO leadership platform I'm likely to have coming out of the gate versus those that I'm going to have to build over a period of time. I think it's going to be very, very valuable for lots of HR leaders. So I can't wait to see that. Last question for you both. What is one word or phrase that you believe will define the future of HR over the next five to 10 years? So mine's pretty easy. Agile experimentation. Pete, how about you? Yeah, I think mine a little different than that. I think that's a good one, and I certainly would endorse that. I think if HR is going to be strategic, you can't benchmark. Strategic is about being different. Okay, and we see so many HR functions trying to benchmark their way to strategic impact. And strategy is all about being different in a way that's uniquely linked to your strategy. So benchmarking is useful to give you information. But to truly be strategic, you have to be differentiated in some way that's important to your strategy. So I'd say agile experimentation linked to a differentiated approach. Pete, John, thank you so much for being on the Future of HR. Incredible insights. Can't wait to see the new research. Thanks, JP. Pleasure to be here. Thank you very much. Appreciate the opportunity. Always a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Future of HR podcast. Thanks again to John and Pete for sharing their thoughts on how HR can become more of a decision science 
As always, you can go to futureofhr.com to view all of our past episodes and learn more about our mission to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. And if you enjoyed this episode of Future of HR, be sure to subscribe and share our podcast with at least one other person. This really helps us grow the podcast and helps with our mission of inspiring the next generation of HR leaders. Since next Tuesday is 4th of July and many of us in the U.S. will be out celebrating, we'll be doing something a little different with the podcast. Over the past few months, our listeners have more than doubled, which is incredible. But this also means that many new listeners might have missed some of the great interviews that happened early on in the podcast. So next week, I'll be re-releasing our best of 2022 episode. This episode featured some of the best guests and segments of 2022. If you just started listening to the podcast in the last few months, I am confident you will love this episode and want to check out many of the early guests like Mark Efron, Jim Shanley, Alan Church, Holly Tyson, and many more. We'll be back with new episodes after the 4th of July holiday, and our first guest will be Mel Steinbach, CPO at Masterclass, who will share her incredible career journey and wisdom with us all, a conversation you won't want to miss. Thanks again for listening to the future of HR and being part of our community.